pray with me? Merciful God in heaven, we come before your word. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says to us, your church, this morning. Soften our hearts that we might receive you. Do this in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, when, uh, when, when babies kind of transition from the baby mode to the, to the toddler mode, uh, there's something that happens to them. All of a sudden, they think that they don't need their parents' help anymore. You know, going downstairs, it's like, no, I don't need you to hold my hand, I got this. Walking on the street next to busy highway, they're like, no, I don't need to hold your hand, I got this. Um, you know, meanwhile, in our minds, you know, especially a parent's mind anyway, you, you, you know, you're imagining them tripping, falling, as they often do, because they're toddlers, they barely know how to walk, right? You imagine them tripping, falling, and bouncing, you know, down the stairs, cracking their head open. Uh, you imagine them wandering out in the streets, getting hit by a semi-truck. Sorry, worrying parents, I just put all those images in your minds. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> Come on, guys, loosen up. It's a joke. We're good. Um, but, you know, one of the things that the toddlers don't understand is that they're needy, right? They're utterly dependent creatures who would die on their own, but they don't always see it. They don't, they don't realize how dependent upon they, they are for you for all things. They, they don't know the, all the times where you, you anticipated them falling and you, and you grabbed them before they could fall, that, that, that glass of milk that gets set right on the edge of the table, that you graciously move before they have a chance to turn and knock it off the floor. Um, and even if you're here and you've, you don't have children, you've likely seen a parent do this or you've likely helped out a little toddler in need, keeping them from running out our own doors into the busy streets after service. Uh, but toddlers are dependent on you for life. And this is not just true for toddlers, of course. This is true for you and I as well. We're needy people. We're dependent in every way on God, for our life, for our health, for our food, for our clothing and everything. But just like a toddler is with a parent, um, struggling to see their needs, so we struggle to see our need for God sometimes. You know, a toddler doesn't see this because uh, their, their understanding is limited. But for us, I think the thing that Jesus points out uh, is, is at least one of the reasons that can limit our view of the depth of our dependency is our own wealth and success in this life or pursuit of wealth and success, which is ultimately, I think, a pursuit that joins with the pursuit of Adam and Eve in the beginning of time to, for our independence. You know, if I just make enough money, if I have enough stuff, or I just, you know, get enough advancements in life, you know, I, I won't need anybody's help. It's our, it's our ability to make money and have success can often mask our neediness and our dependency. Because when you have success, when you have wealth, uh, whenever you need something, what do you do? You, just, you go fix it, right? You, go, you, you buy it. There's nothing that you can't fix on your own. Um, so you can easily become self-dependent, relying on your own wealth, on your own storehouses, forgetting who filled your storehouses to begin with. Now, obviously... It is good to work hard. We should work hard. Scripture speaks often of this, especially in the Proverbs. It's good for children to eventually move out of their parents' house. Amen. Right? These are good things. Um, but this doesn't make you any less dependent upon God every day of your life for everything that you have and don't have. Right? It's God who brings the rain, who keeps your health, who grants wisdom and insight and strength to be able to work 
the world that he created. And I think what, what makes um, our blindness, our, our sense of self-dependency, our ability to do everything on our own so harmful is that when we stop needing God, uh, we become people who are lukewarm, which is not good for anything. We who were made to be light and salt in this world get turned into vomit and are spit out of the Lord's mouth. The condition that is before this Laodicean church, right, the, the final letter written to the seven churches of Asia, modern day Turkey, is a devastating condition. I think if there's one of these seven letters that we've looked at going through the summer that is probably most, uh, most applicable to the church in America at large, um, of course not us in this room, right? But the church in America at large would be uh, this letter, right? The, the church in America as a church has been deeply blessed it's grown. It's sent missionaries around the world. And this is almost as if the letter would be saying, listen, you've been so successful that you've outgrown your dependence upon God. You don't need his help anymore. You got this on your own. You've grown fat off the land. You have no need. You, you think that you are your own. Like, this is exactly what is plaguing this church here in Laodicea. The final of the seven letters written at the beginning of this book of Revelation, this book of unveiling. And you may have noticed that there's, there's actually one distinct thing that's a little different in this letter than the previous letters. And every one of the other letters, it always began with, hey, you guys are doing this thing good, keep up this thing, this thing over here you gotta work on. And so the church probably always walked away feeling like, hey, we're doing pretty good. At least you said something good about us, right? That's, that's pretty good, thank you. Um, but this one is different. From the beginning, what does he say to them? He says, you guys... Uh, have become cold-hearted, stone-dead in your self-reliance. This is the one letter where he doesn't say anything positive about their actions. All of their works are poor, are stone-dead. And if they don't see clearly the truth of their situation, the supper feast at the end of Revelation will happen without them. Jesus will be left outside that door and the church will be left outside that great, great feast. This is meant to be a sobering letter for them and for us. But the beautiful thing about this though is even in their cold-hearted state, Christ pursues them because Jesus wants to be with them. He comes to them because it says he loves them. Right? He disciplines the ones he loves and it's out of this deep, profound love and concern for his people that even in their cold-hearted state, even when all their works are garbage before him, he still comes to them. He comes to them out of his love, and he comes to you this morning out of his deep love for you, calling you from your self-dependence, calling you from your, the things that you're pursuing that you think will give life but actually lead to death so that you might have true life in him. And there's, there's two aspects to Jesus coming to his church this morning that I, that I want to point out for us and reflect on for a bit. And, and they're these. First, that Jesus comes in love with a severe warning. Jesus comes in love with a se severe warning. Right? He's trying to sober them, sober them up. And secondly, that Jesus comes in love with a sweet wooing. Right? He wants his people to return to him, to return to his love. So first, let's consider this, that Jesus comes in love with a severe warning. Jesus comes in love with a severe warning. Start by looking with me here at, at verse 17, the beginning of verse 17. Kind of sets up the condition of the church. It says this, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
This is a rich, prospering church. They have no needs. And to, I think to understand what this means by, what does it mean that they've prospered? I just want to point out a few things of, of what prospering looked like for this church in the context of what life was like in Laodicea at this time. There was, there was four things that Laodicea was known for. The first is this, it was an extremely wealthy city. It was at the crossroads of trade routes. And so because of that, they've, they've grown in gold. Uh, they were so wealthy, in fact, that 30 years prior to this, there was an earthquake that kind of decimated the city. And in Rome, uh, you know, this was under the protection of Rome. So Rome comes in, you know, the FEMA of the day, and they're like, hey, let us help you. And, uh, and Laodicea is like, no, we don't need your help. We got this on our own. So they rebuilt the whole city by themselves. They didn't need anyone's help. And I'm sure it's not cheaper than it is to build cities today. So that's a lot of wealth, very wealthy. Second, they were known for growing this rare black wool that got woven into this beautiful black garment. It was like the Milan of the day. I don't know, maybe this is the root of the Genevan robe uh, that Calvin once wore. Um, but this is kind of the fashion capital of the area. Uh, you knew someone was in if they had this beautiful black garment robe. You can imagine it. It's just shiny and pretty. It's the ultimate status symbol. So is that. So they're wealthy. They had this, this beautiful garments that they made, these black garments. Third, they were known for their medical advancements. You know, their specialty was actually eye care. And so they had this special powder solve that they would put it on people's eyes to heal them. And people would come from all over to experience this healing and get their eyes healed. So these medical advancements. And fourth and finally, they were, uh, they had zero drinking water in their town. For as wealthy as it were, for all the things they had going for them, they had no access to fresh water. And so they had to get their water from one or two neighbors, which we'll elaborate more on later. But this is the people who, earthly speaking, have very little need. Right? And they've set up systems of commerce and health that are cutting edge. They've developed aqueduct systems to solve the one problem they did have, which was water. Right? They got to figure it out. So whenever they actually had real needs, uh, they were wealthy enough that they could fix it on their own. They don't need anyone, anything from anyone. They've outgrown their need. Uh, they are self-dependent people, self-made people. And Jesus comes to this church, these people that are living lavishly, and he says this in verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, these are I always love these introductions to these letters. This is kind of grand language, the words of the amen, right? He is the final word, Jesus. Jesus, the faithful and true witness. Remember the word witness shares root with the word martyr. So this letter comes from Jesus, the final amen, the final word, the yes and amen. The one who was faithful in his life, even until death. The one who has been faithful from the beginning, from all creation until now. Speaking to this church, who has forgotten its need that it, that it would have nothing without its creator. Right? It's forgotten that it, it is actually a created being, that, that wealth and prosperity can make you think that you can do anything. And Jesus, Jesus is almost subtly saying, listen, only, only one of us is actually creator here. And Jesus begins by reminding them, this is, this is who I am. Right? He is about to say hard things to these people and he is the only one who actually has the authority to say these hard things. And he says this in verse 15 to 16. He says this. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
You know, this is one of those verses that has gained a lot of popularity. Uh, you've probably heard it, even if you didn't know this is where it came from. Um, but it's actually kind of a weird thing uh, for us in our modern times to hear. You know, I had a friend once who interpreted this to mean that you can never drink lukewarm drinks. Uh, they're ungodly, they're unspiritual, and it is a sin to drink lukewarm drinks, which is kind of funny. I will agree that it's a sin to drink lukewarm beer, but, as, but apart from that, you know, actually, so I'm a coffee guy, and coffee actually tastes its best. You can taste the complexities of the flavors most when it is lukewarm. So this isn't talking about the spiritual quality of the temperature of your drinks, um, that's not what it's about. I also used to hear this verse talked about in this way, that hot meant you're on fire for the Lord, right? And cold meant that your heart was cold and you actually didn't believe in him. So we want to be hot. We don't want to be cold. Um, but that's not really what's being said here, is it? Jesus actually says, I, I, I wish you were hot or cold. And I, and I think it'd be weird for Jesus to be saying, listen, I'd rather you were pagan than this lukewarm Christian. That is not true. I'd rather you be a lukewarm Christian than a pagan, 100%, 100%. So what is he actually talking about here? This is where context, I think, really helps us figure out what's happening here, because there was two towns that Laodicea would get their water from. One was uh, Colossae, which is the same book, same place that you know, Paul wrote to, the Colossians, and they had this fresh, cold, alpine water. Think like drinking from Mount Rainier, right? Uh, that's their water, refreshing. I mean, it tastes really good right now, wouldn't it? And the, the other city was Heropolis, which was known for their hot springs, People would even go to their hot springs and sit in them, and they, uh, it was known for the health benefits. Uh, these were the, the two places they would kind of get their water from. But the problem was, by the time the water got all the way to them, I can't remember, this is no more than 10 miles, it had to travel in either aqueducts or they had to cart it to them. By the time it would, it would travel that distance, um, the water had become lukewarm. It had either, you know, the, the cold water had become warm, the, the warm water had become cooled, and, uh, and sediment had settled in it, another grime had maybe come into it on in the aqueducts, and it needed to be treated in order to be drunk without uh, becoming sick. And this, Jesus is saying this, I wish you were refreshing like the alpine water, or had healing properties like these hot springs. And he's speaking about their works, right? I wish your works, like your actions, the things that you're doing, the way you're living in this world were either hot or cold. And this, Jesus is saying to the church that their purpose is to bring refreshing water. The church is to be refreshing in the world. It's to be healing in the world, salt and light. But in their lack of their need for God, it had done something. And their self-dependence, their works, which probably once were hot or cold, had become lukewarm. They become like untreated water. You were useless to anyone who, and will actually cause sickness. So much so that this has made Jesus nauseous. He says, you are useless to anyone, uh, and now you've made me nauseous, and I will spit you out of my mouth. I promise not to dwell on this too long, but this idea of spitting out is actually probably more accurately talked about as in vomit. He will literally vomit you out of his mouth. And vomit is, I, I promise I won't talk about this too long again, but it's gross, it's violent, People don't enjoy doing this, right? I, I actually hate it so much that one time my body really needed me to, you know, expel things and I didn't want to. And so I, my body actually put me to sleep. I passed out and I woke up and I looked like a Jackson Pollock painting, but <laughs> thankfully we were at a hotel. So someone else had to clean it up. 
But we don't like it, right? It's, it's a disgusting, it's a gross thing. And this is what Jesus is saying will happen to you if this is what you become. Expelled from his stomach. That's a severe warning. You are meant to be a salt and light to the world, but you've mistaken your earthly success as the end goal of your life and you've grown dependent upon yourself. You've become lukewarm, living for yourself, and you have nothing to offer anyone now. You have lost your sense of distinctiveness, your purpose, so I will spit you out. You're no longer part of me. And he says this here in verse 17 again. It says, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Listen, it's not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's saying, you know, you think you're rich because you have this gold. You think you have prospered because you have these medical advancements and this beautiful clothing. But in reality, you don't see the truth that you are wretched, pitiable, poor. You are naked and you are blind. This actually echoes the, the prophet Hosea in 12.8 when he says, when the, when the people of God had become rich and fattened themselves on the things of the world and they looked like the pagan nations around them, they lost their distinctiveness, their saltiness. And in doing so, they exchanged the wealth found in Christ for the wealth found in the world, and it did not lead to the life it promised. It led to their demise. I think, you know, when Jesus is coming to his people, these can seem like kind of harsh things to, to tell people. Right? You're pitiable, you poor, you blind, you wretched people. But remember, Jesus isn't coming to them in order to pour salt in their wound, to kick, kick them while they're down. He's coming to them to warn them. Right? The end of this says that they might hear. Uh, and he, he ends this letter, right? He who hears, he who has ears, let him hear because I love you. I'm here. I'm going to expose this truth lest you live a lie. To expose the shame of your living because until it's exposed, until you become sober-minded, until I, I splash this cold water on your face to wake you up, uh, you will not wake up and you won't be able to see the problem. The problem is where you rest your hope, right? That the Lord does grant maybe more prosperity, wealth to some more than others, but the question is, do you put your trust in your prosperity and your gold or in the Lord? And can you see accurately the truth of your situation? You know, one of uh, Hans Christian Andersen's most famous stories uh, is the, emperor, the emperor's new clothes. If you don't know this story, you should probably read it. Um, but for those who don't, I'm going to summarize it for you. Don't worry. It's okay. Uh, but the emperor of the day was wealthy beyond measure. And uh, one day, a couple of swindlers come to this, to this emperor. This emperor was known for loving clothing, and he had all the sorts of fine clothing that he would wear. And these swindlers come, and they promise to make him the most amazing garment that he had ever seen. Um, there was one catch, though. You can't actually see this garment if you are uh, stupid or incompetent. And so, of course, no king wants to admit stupidity or incompetency. So they hold up this pretend, you know, garment, and they say, look at this. And the emperor looks at it and he's like, wow, that is beautiful. Then he looks to his advisors and he's like, what do you guys think? And they're like, oh yeah, that is beautiful. Because no one wants to be stupid or incompetent. So they go along with this. And then fast forward the story, during the story, these, these swindlers, they make, you know, they, they set up their um, spool and stuff and they, they pretend to make this garment. And at the end of the, the, the story, the emperor gets his new garment, he puts it on and he parades to the city and everyone's cheering and, and looking on him. And then finally, there's this child that yells out, the emperor has no clothes, right? The emperor was blinded by his own pride, by his own wealth, by his own status, and he refused to see what was in front of him because he couldn't see it. 
The church in Laodicea is like the emperor with no clothes. We, the church, have become the emperor with no clothes. We've been fooled by our wealth and success and our own sense of competency to depend on ourselves for our own clothing, for our wealth, our, uh, in our superior intellect to know things. And in all our wealth and knowledge, we think that we have so much to offer everybody else. Yet we can't see the truth that in our dependence on ourselves, we have grown lukewarm. We have lost the healing balm to offer the nations, to offer our neighbors. We have lost our saltiness, our ability to bring life to the world. We fail to, when we fail to see just how needy and desperate we are, we have nothing to offer anybody. And unless we heed Jesus' words here, the severe warning is this, that he will spit you out of his mouth. So what do you do with warnings like this? Because warnings like this, you know, my, myself included, we all feel the guilt in it, right? The ways that we love and we put our hope in the things of this world. I mean, I'm a, I'm a classic gadget guy. I love gadgets. And it's easy for me to put my hope in gadgets. Not that it's wrong to buy gadgets. If you're a gadget person, go for it. Just share it with me. No, but it's so easy to put our hope in all the different things of this world, chasing, our ha chasing after happiness and joy in the things of this world. What do we do with these kind of warnings? Well, I think what we need to do is actually listen to the rest of Jesus' words here. Right? That Jesus is not some angry God who is impossible to please, but what we're going to find is his burden is light, his yoke is easy. He actually doesn't want you to be naked and poor and pitiable and blind. He wants us to understand that true wealth is not found in the things of this world. But the, the wealth and the prosperity of the world is a, is a pale reflection to what we find in him. To borrow from a very overused but amazing C.S. Lewis idea, like he doesn't want us settling for mud pies when this ocean vista is just over the horizon. He is here to tend our flames like a good faithful priest that, that we would live and have life according to his word. And so as Jesus comes in love with this severe warning, he also comes in love with a sweet wooing. This is the second movement we see here, that Jesus comes in love with a sweet wooing. Look with me here at verse 18. After saying all this, Jesus offers counsel. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solved to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I love this. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them, actually, for pursuing wealth, does he? He almost encourages it. Fine garments, great. Healthy eyes, you should pursue these things. These are sound pursuits. These are desires that are put in our hearts by our creator. He doesn't say stop pursuing those things, does he? He just tells them, listen, you've been looking in the wrong place for them. Like anyone that's loving, if you're searching for something and you're searching in the wrong place, it would be unloving to let them continue on in their foolishness. And he's like, no, no, the search is good, just not there, here. And then he does something kind of funny. He sends them on this shopping trip, right? He, he sends them shopping. He's like, you want gold? Great. Come buy it from me. The, the gold you need can only come from me. Buy, buy from me gold refined by fire to be rich. True riches come from me. He says, you want garments? Great, come buy garments from me. They are pure white. You know, white is this clothing of the ancient ones enthroned in heaven. It's what Jesus himself was wearing in, in, in the vision that, that he gave to John. He is giving them eternal garments that they can wear with him as his bride forever. Right? Jesus is preparing his bride, his people for their wedding. 
He said, come and buy clothing that comes only from me. Only I can offer this garment. Only I can cover the shame of your nakedness. You know, whenever the Bible talks about shame of nakedness, it's typically dealing with idolatry in scripture. The shame of pursuing false gods. Right? The shame that we experience in all of our sin. The shame that we try to cover with so many different things. He's saying, listen, come to me and I will cover all of that. I will make you pure again, so much so that you can wear white on your wedding day. Come to me. Buy this clothing, it can only come from me. Lastly, he says, right, come and buy from me salve to anoint your eyes that you might be able to see. Right, it is one thing to gain physical sight, it is another thing to be able to see clearly the truth. Right, and the eyes in, in Revelation are, th are there to judge accurately the truth, to discern reality, to see like the beasts of Revelation with their seven all-seeing eyes, to have an, an eyesight that gives accurate judgment that you can see truth and falsehood. This can only be given by shopping at Jesus' storehouse. So Jesus says to those whom he loves, he says to those who love to go shopping, come, shop, just shop with me and I will give you what you need. But this kind of begs well, they say question, how are you supposed to buy all this when Jesus just said that they're poor, wretched, pitiable, blind? How, how can they actually come and afford all of this? Is there like a heavenly credit card you gotta apply for that you need to buy this stuff? You know, with the, the symbolic invitation here echoes Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 promises food and wine and milk for all who come and have no money. There's actually no cost for what Jesus offers. In fact, all the money in the world could actually not buy it. They couldn't even afford it because this was purchased by the blood of Christ and given freely to his people. Right, through the cross, he made a way for you to become rich like he is rich. And only those who recognize their neediness, their utter dependency on him can afford this store. Because while it costs you nothing monetarily, it also costs you everything in your life. So Jesus comes in love with his sweet wooing to tell you, listen, I'm gonna show you where to look for those riches, for those things that you long for in your heart. Come from me, they are free. But secondly, he also shows us what does it look like for us to pursue those riches that come from his storehouse. And this is the second aspect of the sweet wooing is found in this command here in verse 19. He says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is the command, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. This is the command that comes to us in this passage. The way to purchase all of this is to embrace your poverty. Accept that there's nothing you can do to earn it and that the path to accept this is repentance. Repentance, which is this changing of allegiances, right? This church has been in allegiance with the world, uh, pursuing hope and life in the world, and he's saying, no, turn from that. Find your allegiance, your, your life in me. They have become like the world in their lukewarmness. They have lost their distinctiveness that, that God's people ought to have. And he's saying, so be zealous, repent. Be zealous in turning from these things. This means to have a deep awareness of your dependency and to chase after it. Replace your zealousness for, your, for riches with the, the zealousness for Christ and the poverty that you have apart from him. You know, I, I don't want to brush past the beginning of this verse 19 either. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Listen, this is out of love that Jesus comes. 
This isn't those whom I used to love, those whom I did love, those who I could love. This is those whom I actually love right now in this moment, right? Despite this church's running away from him, Jesus is still pursuing them because they're his, because they're his bride and he loves them. And he says, turn. So I don't, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to be impoverished. Come, have your needs met in me. He doesn't want you to waste the, the true wealth that he's extended to you. He wants you to have life. And so Jesus' sweet wooing of his people starts with this storehouse that he puts before him. Jesus opens this market where, where all the, the cost is, is covered by him. Then Jesus reminds them of his love and desire to be with them. And then Jesus ends this section with this overt invitation as he's knocking at the door of the Laodicean church and inviting them to receive these gifts. Look at verse 20 and 21. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is saying, listen, I am at your door, knocking. I'm not just hiding here. I am knocking, actively saying, come, hear me, let me in. I want to feast with you that you might feast with me. I have come for you, my love. And this knocking door actually echoes the Song of Songs in chapter 5. When the shepherd goes to the, to the door of his beloved and knocks, and he says, my love, my dove, my perfect one, I desire to be with you. This is the imagery that Jesus is, is resting on for this portion. He's trying to evoke this image in the hearts of this church, his bride. He said, I'm standing outside your door knocking. My love, my dove, my perfect one. Let me in. That we might feast. He doesn't want to spit you out of his mouth. He wants to transform you into something glorious and beautiful. Remember, revelation, the word, means to unveil. Jesus is unveiling himself to his bride, to his church, preparing them for the great wedding feast of the lamb that waits for them. And there is only one way to prepare yourself for that. It isn't by becoming rich and powerful on your own, but by recognizing your profound weakness and need. That the strength and belonging that you desire are only found in one place. This is the person and the work of Christ. Christ who. 2 Corinthians tells us, who was rich, gave up the wealth of heaven to become poor like us, that we might become rich, that we might uh, be conquerors as he is a conqueror, because he came to conquer our sin, that we might have life with him, and he would make us his co-heir, sitting where he sits. The clothing we desire to cover the shame of our nakedness, this is the clothing that we've been seeking since the fall in the garden, Right? trying to find some way to cover the shame of our sin. This covering is found only in Christ. In him, our shame is fully covered. Right, that blindness that we seek to overcome in our lives that we can see clearly, this is found in Christ alone. He alone can give you eyes to see that which is true. And this is free, his free gift to you. He's knocking at your door saying, let me in. Accept these gifts. And then you will regain your saltiness and you will be a light and a balm for the world. Because as you let him in, as we let him in to this church, as we dine with him, he will transform you from a lukewarm person to someone who has grown hot and cold. 
He, he will make us a refreshing balm and a healing wing to the nations. This is his generosity to us. And as he transforms us, he makes us like him. We become generous like he is generous, just like we've come to his storehouse for free. So we invite others to come with us. And it, it makes for extremely generous people when we stop chasing the riches and prosperity of the earth for our identity and purpose. When riches and prosperity come our way, we can freely share them. Because in this, we become a beacon of salt and light to the world in desperate need of salt and light. Now, you, you may be here and you may, might be thinking, listen, Craig, this is all good. Um, I agree with you. I'm a needy, dependent person. Yes, amen. But maybe you're in a place in your life where you're saying, I have been reminded over and over of my weakness and my neediness, and I'm good. Like, I get it. I'm a needy, weak person. I don't need it to be put into my face constantly. I have not forgotten this because I'm walking through some of the most painful parts of my life right now where I know that I can't do anything to fix the problem before me. So what do I do? Well, let me just speak to this for a moment. I think even when pain and suffering happens, we still have a reflex that says, I need to stop this pain as fast as possible. So we can, we can pray and we can reach out to God in moments of pain, but really we just want him to end it so we can move on with our lives. And I think it's possible to be both needy in pain and still be self-reliant on our own strength and ability to get ourselves out of pain. It is possible to both recognize your state of neediness but attempt to run from it and solve it on your own. So this is an encouragement here for you to hear that, that Christ knows your need. He knows your pain. He knows that he alone can solve this problem for you and there's nothing that you can do to fix it on your own. And as you read the stories in scripture, I think you begin to see this. You understand that the state of the church here, even in Revelation, these tribulations that are before them, that are about to befall them and, and are happening to some of these people, uh, they're dying. Right? We have to understand that it is possible that God will not quickly deliver you out of your pain. And the question is, are you okay being needy if God is all you have in your life? If his storehouse is all you can shop from, is that enough for you? You might be wondering, well, how do I endure that? Who, who signs up for a life of pain and suffering? How do we endure this? Because of what he says here at the end. Because of the one who conquered death. He promises life with him. Jesus doesn't just come and promise you temporary wealth and gain, but he comes promising something everlasting that will never stop or die. He promises a future where all will be made well. And as you unite to him by faith, as you open the door for him to come and feast with you, his conquering becomes your conquering. His victory is your victory. Right? Death may come for you, pain may come for you, but it does not have the final word. Your pain, your shame, all the things that you're wrestling with right now do not have the final word, full stop. But Christ does. His conquering your sin and death and pain and suffering, how does he conquer those things? By enduring them. How does he conquer death? By dying and rising to new life, ascending to heaven where he sits right now and he shares that resurrection life with you. And yes, you might enter into various stages of suffering and dying on this side of the earth, but that is not your end. Hope is. Everlasting joy is. We can know this because Christ has purchased this for you already by his blood. And he shares it with you, his people, because he wants you to rest and to depend on him and his work on the cross. 
And as you do, you can endure all things. Not perfectly, not flawlessly, but as a community together, we encourage and strengthen each other to hold on. That one day we might taste glory together. May we be a people who understand the, the depth of our need and dependency on Christ for all things. May we be a people who open the door for Jesus when he knocks. May we be a salt and light to a desperate world which doesn't know how desperate it is. Pray with me. Almighty, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. May your word be a solve to our eyes that we might see. May your word remind us of the truth that you have covered our shame and help us to see that we are clothed people. May your word remind us of our true treasures and our wealth that is beyond imagination as we are found in you and as you share all that is yours with us. May we rest on these things, may we hope on these things, and may we not forget these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.